It's a feeling unlike any other for athletes. Soaring into the sky with wind under their wings, floating ever so gently in the air before sticking it to the landing hill. It is a magical sport. Welcome to Ticket to Fly, the podcast bringing you news and features from the world of ski jumping and Nordic combined. I'm Tom Kelly, and I'm joined by Ticket to Fly host Peter Graves. The Olympic Winter Games in Beijing are coming ever so much closer, just a little bit over a month away. Over Christmas in Lake Placid, USA Nordic and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee held the Olympic trials, awarding wildcard spots for the 2022 Olympic team that will be officially named later in January. One of the big winners in Lake Placid was Taylor Fletcher, a Steamboat Springs native now living in Park City. The veteran Fletcher held off strong challenges to earn a trip to his fourth Olympics on the Nordic combined team. And Peter Graves, thanks for joining us. This was really quite an insightful interview from a real seasoned veteran. Yeah, there's so much to like about Taylor Fletcher. Um, And I followed his career, as you know, for an awfully long time. He's really a delightful guy. He has a great uh, hard-won perspective uh, on the sport and on athletic excellence. He's just fascinating to me. And Tom, consider that his first Olympic team was uh, the gold medal moment for U.S. Nordic combined in Vancouver. He was uh, just, uh, you know, wet under the ears and, and, and went up there. So the thing I find interesting is that Taylor has transcended this whole period of time, Tom, learned a lot. Probably not the same person exactly that he was when he started. But we know after seeing the trials in Lake Placid that he is in a very good spot now. You know, one of the things, and he touched on this in the interview, but as I look at his career and also look at the sport of Nordic combined, how much the sport itself has evolved different rules, different formats, different heroes in the sport, different uh, strategies in the races. And Taylor Fletcher has seen it all. Olympics in 2010, 2014, 2018, and now 2022. Yeah, for sure. In fact, I think uh, at the FIS level, Nordic combined has been uh, amongst the most innovative uh, with the events they have uh, presented. I mean, the one thing we talked a lot about, Taylor, is uh, one of the best Nordic combined cross-country skiers in the world. And he's been very candid uh, about his jumping and needing to improve on that. We touched quite deeply in this interview and get some really uh, insightful and honest comments from him uh, just uh, about two months from Beijing. You know, Peter, one of the things we did not talk a lot about was Beijing itself. And the reason being, no one's been there. No one really knows what the jumps are like, what the cross-country trails are like. How difficult is this for athletes to go into this environment? Is it is it a benefit because it's a neutral thing? No one's been there? Or is it going to challenge people by the fact that they haven't really seen the venue? I, I think it it will be very challenging and anxiety producing. There was a cross country sprint over there a couple of years ago, Tom, most of the facilities are rather untested and they have had some smaller meets, uh, mostly with some, uh, athletes from, from China. Uh, but 
you know, uh, let's make the analogy. Taylor feels very comfortable in places like Lake Placid, Park City, and his own home hill of Steamboat Springs. Uh, you're going to throw that out right now. And uh, given that he's... Uh, a little older now and more mature. I expect that he's going to handle it just about as well as anybody, honestly. Well, it'll be fun to watch. It's coming up in February, not very far out. We'll be watching it on NBC. And uh, Peter, we look forward to more episodes on Ticket to Fly coming up as we head to Beijing. Now let's get to the interview as Peter Graves, the host of Ticket to Fly, talks with Taylor Fletcher on the eve of his fourth Olympic appearance. In 1924, when the Olympic Winter Games came to Chamonix, France for the very first time, the ski sports were represented by Nordic Combined and Ski Jumping. An interesting fact is the first Alpine races didn't occur until 1936 in Garmisch-Partenkirchen when a combined event was held for both men and women using a downhill and slalom. But our special guest today uh, at 31 years of age, has spent a lifetime calling his considerable skills in the sport of Nordic combined. And based on the Olympic trials of last week in Lake Placid, New York, Taylor Fletcher of Steamboat Springs, Colorado, punches his ticket to another Olympic Games. This will mark his fourth. Extraordinary. And Taylor, it's great to have you. First, congratulations. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm excited to be here. Oh, well, it, it's it's great to have you. Um, by all accounts, watching uh, the NBC show, which was great, um, it looked like a heck of a competition. Pretty good crowds over there, too, at both jumping and cross-country at Mount Van Hovenberg. And um, the events looked uh, very well run to me, Taylor. Yeah, I mean, uh, USA Nordic uh, and the US OPC did a fantastic job hosting these Olympic trials. You know, it's a difficult uh, world right now, and uh, they were able to put on a safe, but also effective competition. And, uh, you know, all the athletes and volunteers did a, a fantastic job. Um, and, you know, it allowed us to go out there, have fun, compete in front of a crowd, but also on live TV in front of millions of people. Yeah, that, that was incredible. So one question I want to ask you, and I also want to talk about your career, but um, at one point, all of your skis were missing coming back from Finland. Did you ever get them? before the trial started? So um, the the crew of athletes that were in Ruka, Finland um, for the Continental Cup were missing their skis. Uh, mm -hmm. Most all of them got their jump skis before, except for Stephen Schumann and Carter Brubaker. Um, they unfortunately had to borrow skis from the men's jumping team. Mm -hmm. And I believe now they've actually shown up in Lake Placid and will be brought back to Europe uh, for the start of this next uh, period of competition. But, you know, it's an unfortunate thing. Um, we've had to deal with that all winter long. It's not the first time that we've had uh, lost luggage or lost uh, equipment. And so, you know, we're, we're starting to take these precautions of, you know, hey, we're going to leave a set here in Europe so that if uh, we don't get our skis when we come back, we have a set. 
Um, but you know, it's just kind of how things work sometimes. And it's unfortunate, you know, it definitely threw kind of a wrench into their preparations. Um, but I was really impressed with both Steven and Carter and the rest of the guys that missed their, their luggage because, uh, it didn't really seem like it let them, it let them, uh, be affected and, uh, yeah. it shows the mental stability and capabilities of, uh, of these young athletes. But it must be very unnerving not to have your skis because, you know, I mean, I've traveled around the circuit a, a long time, whether I know what alpine skiers carry, I know what uh, jumpers carry. You have kind of both. So the amount of luggage you guys must be traveling with is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's always a difficult, fortunately, um we don't have too many competitions in the U S that we have to fly back with, you know, a couple dozen race skis, uh, all your jump skis, your jumpsuits, all your boots and, and helmets. Um, so, you know, it definitely creates difficulties when we do have to fly with all that, uh, during the season, it's not too bad. I mean, uh, all of our, uh, service staff, our wax techs, you know, they carry all of the race skis and most of the training skis, you know, and we really just fly with our jump bags if, if necessary. Um, so we're able to get around pretty efficiently, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, each pair of, of, especially jump skis is so individual to that, uh, person that you grow accustomed to them. And, and if all of a sudden you have to borrow someone's skis, they're maybe a little bit shorter than yours. The balance point is a little bit different. The bindings may be a little bit different. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's an odd feeling and uh, it definitely takes a, a few jumps to be able to get comfortable. And, you know, those extra jumps aren't always possible. So you have to be prepared to switch right away and, uh, you know, get comfortable on those, those skis for competition. Well, you grew up in what's known as Ski Town USA, Steamboat Springs. There certainly have been uh, quite a few Nordic combined skiers out of there. Did you start right off in cross country and or jumping or how, how was your progression from the early ages? I mean, it's, it's funny. Um, a lot of people don't realize I actually wanted to be a hockey player when I was young, like mm. really young. All my friends growing up were hockey. Um, but what, what caught me uh, off guard is I was terrible at stopping. Um, huh. I could not hockey stop. And therefore, my hockey career was uh, over before it really even started. And uh, fortunately, I had an older brother, um, you know, in the sport, Brian, you know, uh, I was that younger brother that wanted to do everything my older brother did. And during that time, uh, he started into ski jumping and cross country skiing. He was going through his cancer treatments mm -hmm. and uh, I was able to see the joy and, and the fun that he was having while battling a, a deadly disease. And, uh, you know, I thought, Hey, if he can do this, I can do it. And, uh, so pretty much at the age of four, after realizing I wasn't going to be a hockey player, I jumped right into the steamboat Springs Warren sports club and, and started right away. So you're, you're on the cusp of a fourth Olympic games, which is extraordinary. I believe your first though was 2010 in Vancouver. I mean, uh, wow. If there was an experience to sort of peep through keyholes on, uh, that was that was an extraordinary time. I, I suspect you have a, a tremendous amount of memories of being there because it was so successful for us. 
Absolutely. I mean, uh, and that's kind of been my, my whole career too, is, uh, I came into a team that was, uh, the best in the world. Uh, you know, Billy DeMong, Johnny Splain, Todd Lodwick, uh, from 2003 till, uh, 2011, essentially world championship medals were there. Um, and this was the first Olympics where they were really, you know, a favorite to win not only because it's right outside our backyard up in, in Vancouver, but because, you know, they had come through and had world championship medals the previous year, you know, multiple golds. Um, and we had built a good training program, uh, for everyone. And so for me to get named to the team in 2010, yes, I wanted to go to the Olympics, but in all reality, I, I didn't have any expectations on going. Um, I was just excited to compete all year long. But what really helped me was going into a team knowing that, hey, these guys are some of the best in the world. I just have to do what they're doing and and follow them and, you know, be a ghost on Billy's shoulder and, and challenge him. And, uh, you know, that's what allowed us to be such great friends over the years is uh, we really were able to push each other um, and, and grow as, a, as athletes. And I saw, you know, the strength of the, those guys uh, firsthand when they you know, won multiple medals in Vancouver, bringing home, you know, the first ever Olympic medal, but then also the first Olympic gold. Um, and that gave, you know, not just me, but the whole entire team motivation for the future years. You know, I, I, I've talked to so many Olympians over the years and interviewed them. And, and a lot of times people will say, especially if they've gone to multiple Olympic Games, you know, the first was, it was great to be on it, but it was kind of a throwaway in terms of, you know, my results. But but I learned something. I grew through that experience. So I was much more prepared for the next one. So I guess the question is now, being on the cusp of your fourth, having won that uh, trial in Lake Placid, um, I would guess as far as knowledge and experience, you're pretty much uh, on top of your game. And you... uh, you know, does anybody know all of it? I, d- I don't know. Uh, but but you're you're pretty close to being a, a complete student at this uh, Olympic participation. What what sort of lessons are different going into Beijing than they might have been uh, Vancouver or Sochi? Going into your first Olympics, you're definitely there to to take it in. Yes, you're there to compete. And that's the number one goal is to do as, as well as you can to represent your country. Um, but there's there's the whole mental side. And yes, the, the U.S. puts uh, a lot of pressure on U.S. Olympians to do well. And coping with uh, the pressure of being on the world's biggest stage is, is a challenge for some people. Fortunately for me, I've had, uh, you know, great sports psychologists that have helped me along the way. And uh, allowed me to kind of realize and visualize what I need to do in order to perform my best at the Olympics. But there's definitely a difference, um, you know, going into my second, my third and going into my fourth, you know, in reality, the Olympics aren't any different from a normal competition that we have all winter long every single year, except for you become an Olympic champion if you win or you bring home, you know, 
one of these amazing Olympic medals. Let me interrupt right there because I think what you're saying, and I want to get this right, uh, you're you're saying that the Olympics on any certain day, it's really just a World Cup, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And okay. and in matter in fact, there's less people than a World Cup um, yeah. because nations can only bring you know four four guys and start four athletes. But that being said, yes, there is that pressure and and that thrill of competing in the Olympics. And that's what really can get people uh, you know, caught up in. And that's when you see those top guys falter a little bit. And maybe some of the guys that are uh, favored as underdogs to rise up and, and snatch that gold away. Mm-hmm. For me, going into this fourth Olympics, I'm going in there with the expectations of having my best day of the season on you know a given competition day. Um, that's really what I'm all about. And, you know, if that means I get fourth place or I get third place, you know, if I have the opportunity to win a medal, I'm going to do everything I possibly can. But between now and, uh, those first competitions, there's a lot of work to be done because I want to go there with every opportunity to, uh, you know, possibly bring home some hardware. Yeah. Interesting. And the sports psychologist is, is one of the things they work on uh managing stress uh expectation and, and that sort of thing right absolutely i mean uh stress is a big thing you know as you get into the olympics there's interviews there's uh you know obviously we're going to have to do a lot of covid tests this year the the stress of what goes on um all the people that are around that is a a large aspect of it but in reality, it's the expectations and the goals that are, you know, the driving factor for, um, you know, some people. For me, it's managing expectations is one of the most important things. I can be going into a uh, competition, having some of my best training jumps, uh, you know, of a career. But unless you're doing that on a consistent basis, you cannot expect to do that every round. And so you have to be realistic. You have to understand where you really are and go out there and, and not expect to do something, but to follow that process and allow yourself to execute like you know you can so that you uh, you have the you know your best jump on that that day. Yeah. Now I I knew a fellow Cadell Evans who won the Tour de France for Australia a, a number of years ago. And one of the things that he did is during the tour, he, he, and everybody knew it. So they were okay with it. Um, he, he didn't shake hands with anybody, uh, which I always thought was interesting. Some people were put off, but people that understood how many years and years go into all this, are there certain things that you won't do? Do you try to avoid crowds? Certainly you try to avoid being around people that are ill, but uh, do you have certain rituals regarding dealing with the greater scene of the Olympics? No, not necessarily. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's definitely certain things that uh, I will limit, you know, phone use, uh, social media. You know, I want to try to make sure that I'm there to do um, what I'm actually there to do, and that is to compete and and ski. You can get wrapped up in a lot of stuff, you know, uh, yes. the aura of the Olympics, meeting other Olympians, trading pins. There's so much stuff that you can do that can pull you away from what your your goals are and what your mindset is. And so for me, you know, 
recovery is a huge thing. Uh, we're traveling, you know, another eight hours in a different direction. So managing sleep, managing your food and your diet, and then making sure that your training is the right training for you, making sure that every cross country sessions in the right zone, and then getting that recovery in after there's, there's enough on our plate already to, to do. So it's for me, it's important not to get an extra load on top of me to, you know, be able to uh, go out there and, and have fun and, and do well. It makes sense. Uh, do you, are your workouts defined that you know what you're going to be doing now every day in January, Taylor? We still have a, a full period of competition coming up here. When we're in competition mode, I can tell you essentially what I've done uh, from Monday till f- Sunday for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we have that that program. We have the, the um, routine that we've, we follow year to year, week to week. But during an Olympic years, things change a little bit. The goal is to be in your best shape possible come that uh, two weeks, uh, three weeks in February. So there might be a little bit more training from here on uh, up until like two weeks before. So things do change a little bit, but in reality, we're still skiing every day. You know, there are some gym sessions in there, um, some jump sessions uh, outside of competition to, you know, really try to get as much in as you can, but focusing on the, the quality versus the quantity too. And certainly all of us know the recuperative powers of sleep. How important is that sleep component to you? Uh, it's everything. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, people that know me that know that I don't have a, an issue sleeping, but mm-hmm. uh, what people don't really understand is how uh, valuable I see sleep as. This summer, I've done a good job of really getting to bed, you know, 9 30, 10 o'clock on a consistent basis. But I've also had my challenges. Um, you know, I've got a full-time job that mm-hmm. uh, I need to do. So I've had to shift my hours a little bit. So maybe going to bed a little bit earlier, um, getting up a little bit earlier um, in the mornings to get a training session in before before work. So I won't lie. I mean, I think sleep, uh, as much as people say it's important, I think you can take it to a higher level and say it's critical to success, getting a good seven, eight hours a night is uh, what will allow you to peak and be ready for Olympic competition. You you have started a, a full-time job. Is there a blessing in that? Uh, I, I'm sure there is uh, in many ways, but is there a blessing in that uh, for a few hours every day, you don't have to think 100% about Nordic Combined? It, it, it's a distraction, a pleasant one. Absolutely. I think... Uh, there is life outside of sport. Um, and I've, you know, it took me a while to realize that, but for me, when I'm in focus in training, I want to have all my attention on that. I don't, I don't want to have outside distractions, something that's keeping me out. But when I'm done training, I want to be able to switch off that training headset, uh, mindset into something different. And, uh, fortunately my work has allowed me to do that. And Mm -hmm. so now every time I go into a training session, I'm excited to train and I'm in the mindset like I'm enjoying this. This is fun. Instead of, you know, in years past, it's been like, oh, this is I've got to go out for uh, a workout. Um, And that's something that uh, one of my former sports psychologists taught me was, you know, uh, oh, I've got to go train. 
And then I realized that I'm putting that stress on me because I got to get out the door. I got to go do it. Mm -hmm. But instead saying I get to go train. Um, Mm -hmm. And now you're kind of releasing a little bit of joy um, instead of of stress. And that's helped me a lot. Just being able to go do what I want to do. And, you know, I've really seen the results uh, benefit from that. Yeah, that's a nice way of looking at it. So when your brother retired, of course, and you guys are very close, you become the elder statesman of the team. There's a lot of very young guys in both jumping and Nordic combined right now. And knowing you, uh, I'm sure you handle that with great empathy and respect because it's who you are. Um, Well, what do the kids, what's that relationship like with some of the younger athletes? I mean, it's great. You know, they have their their direction, what they want to do. They're a little bit different than I am. But in reality, it's it's no different to how I came into the team. I mean, I'm 10 years younger than Billy. I, I see a lot of similarities, and I think that's a, a good thing. Bill would say the same thing. I, I went in there and I wanted to beat him on a daily basis and, and challenge him. And I see a lot of these guys wanting to do the same thing. They want to beat me. They want to beat, you know, the so-called old man on the team. And so it creates competition. Mm -hmm. And I think competition creates a fire that allows athletes to better themselves, um, as an individual, but as well as, as a whole team. That's the, the, the cool thing. And, you know, I got to give credit to, you know, Ben Loomis and Jasper Good and uh, Jared Shoemate and Steven, they've really upped their game these last two years um, to, you know, become better athletes. Um, and it's caused me to, you know, hey, to stay ahead of them, I got to, you know, match them at least or do something a little bit more. So they've helped you up your game. You know, I have a particularly notable one circumstance, the, the race with Ben going out. I think you were yep. 56 seconds back, you know, and, and, you know, you had you had to work at it to get up there, uh, and uh, it w- it was an exciting race to see. Jared had a great race, for example, too. You you've had some strong results in your career. You had a bronze fist medal and a team event, uh, and your two top World Cup performances uh, have both been third in Seyfeld and in Sapporo, and. I got to believe, Taylor, that if anybody is capable of placing in, I mean, the top six, maybe it's the top 10, they're capable of winning on any any given day, you know, especially at the World Cup level where the competition is tighter. What have those excellent performances done for you as far as as your confidence? I mean, it's definitely helped a lot. Um, knowing that I've had the results in the past kind of throughout my career, you know, it gives you that, that little bit of extra confidence knowing that, Hey, if I put one, you know, if I put a good jump down there, I can race my way into the podium. That being said, the sport has changed quite a bit since, uh, you know, 2013, 2015, the jumping level has increased so much over these last couple of years. And, um, I've definitely been a little slow to respond. Jumping in the last year and a half uh, with, uh, you know, Chris Gilbertson and Gregor Lindzig has risen quite a bit. I'm still finding that that edge in competition a little bit, 
but uh, you know, I'm having jumps to K in competition, and that's something that I haven't done in a long time. And you know, just a couple more meters, you're you're in the hunt. And one of the the challenges is I've been one of the fastest athletes uh, on the circuit for almost a, a decade now, but racing from 40th place to the top 10 is a lot harder. But racing from 20th place to the top 10, you're already in the group with some of the faster guys. So it, you're able to actually race faster. Um, mm -hmm. You're not having to get around so many people or have so many people kind of towing um, behind you. So I definitely, I'm excited for it. And, you know, uh, I do feel like I've got a, a good opportunity for a quality result, whether that's, uh, you know, top 10 or possibly a top six, but you know, I got to have a good jump and that's, that's for sure. Uh, cause then I can go out there and ski the race that I want to ski. Well, even in your own words, uh, what you're saying, you still have to work on the jumping hill. So can you define that uh, a little more, uh, clearly to me, um, is there a certain part of the jump, Taylor, that's been more challenging uh, than another? I don't know, the takeoff, the right. landing, you can tell me. Um, is, is there a certain area you work on almost above all others with jumping? Yeah, it's uh, the start of my move. So, you know, you get off the bar. It's It's really important to get off the bar correct. That's often overlooked. So making sure you're getting off in the right position. You know, your ankles are free, your legs are free. Um, you have that little bit of tension in your hip to start the drive. But once you start your move, starting it with full power, you know, it's it's uh, pretty interesting to see the difference between a couple guys on the circuit where, you know, how they start their move, they can all be different. Um, yeah, there's I'm no sure. ideal ski jump. But for me, what makes a good jump versus uh, a poor jump is the start of my move. Because if I don't start with good power and, and good movement, then I'm late off the end of the ski jump. Right. So I'm losing a lot of power, which creates height and effect and, and speed. And so that leads to another problem, you know, and, and that's the entry into the flight. I'm a little bit slower and behind on that. So there's really one thing that fixes all of that, and that's the timing. And this whole yeah. summer, it's gotten better and better and better. Wonderful. But, and then it also opens up new issues. And and that's the, the beautiful thing about ski jumping, but also the, the challenging and frustrating thing is you can be making improvements uh, time after time. But then once you fix something, there's another issue that you have to uh, accomplish. And so then it's like a never ending list of, of challenges for me and and I'm not one to shy away from the challenge, Yeah, but it's definitely, you know, it's frustrating and it's tiring when you feel like you're going in the right direction, but then you have to fix a whole nother, another problem. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, I've, I've never heard anybody express that, uh, you know, it can begin just getting off the bar at the top. You know, I, I they're more of my age group, but, uh, uh, Jeff Hastings mm -hmm. and Mike Holland, and we've talked a lot and uh, over the years. And and one of the things that we've kept going back to, and I find it fascinating, they say, you know, ski jumping is a lot like golf. It is. And, and finding, I guess, that sweet spot. Can you maybe give us your thought on that analogy? I can give you a very uh, specific analogy. So mm -hmm. my former sports psychologist, Rich Gordon, he was awesome. 
he understood me in and out like every uh, psychologist should. He knew I was a, a compassionate and competitive person that kind of wears its heart on, uh, wears my heart on my sleeve. And he would see that I would get kind of fired up when jumping wasn't going well, or when I would get into a mindset before jumping. He knew that I loved golf. And so he said, oh. I want you to go out there and I want you to swing the club as hard as you possibly can. Just like you think you, you should jump. Sure as hell, that, that <laughs> golf ball went probably more sideways than it did forward. And so, but you clobbered it. You clobbered it. I, right? I mean, I smashed it, but it did not go where it was supposed to. <laughs> Indeed. And okay. so, in reality, that's a lot like ski jumping. You need to be thorough, but you need to kind of follow that process. So, making sure you have a good backswing um, and you're not just ripping it back, and then making sure that you're coming through clean. Um, on the ski jump, you know, uh, Chris Gilbertson's always said, you know, jump 50% of full power in training. Mm. And mm -hmm. in reality, you're jumping closer to 100%. But when you try to jump 100%, you're probably closer to 50%. It's it's one of those things um, where you, know, you can't try so hard. Yeah, yeah. And because, you know, then you're going to be tense and you're going to be fighting it the whole entire time. And uh, that that makes it difficult. That's very interesting. You know, cross country is, is, if you will, diametrically opposed to ski jumping. And some of the things that might be very well suited from a mental standpoint, they can be really useful in cross country and not so useful in that. But um, so you've skied a long time. You're, you have very good technique. You're fit. You've got a lot of muscle memory and probably you're you're still getting stronger all the time. What is it about your cross country that makes you so good? Um, I would say, you know, it's a little bit twisted. I, I like that pain, um, that suffering mm -hmm. that occurs in endurance sports. It's trainable. It doesn't, it's not a gift to everybody, but it, you know, those that don't have it can get it. And, and I find that really cool and interesting. But for me, what I love about cross country is I love being able to achieve as much as I possibly can out of my body. Billy was kind of uh, instrumental in helping me with this, but uh, 10 more seconds, 10 more seconds, um, pushing, you know, just that little bit more um, and, and getting that, that last little bit of energy out of your body before you cross the finish line. Um, people always laugh when cross country skiers cross that line and completely collapse. It's a very mental sport and, and also very physical, obviously, and being able to go out there and ski the race that I want to ski where I'm going as hard as I possibly can for four laps, um, is, is so rewarding, uh, and seeing, you know, people fall off your pace. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. I, I, I know, and I look back at some of my own cross-country racing career, and I, I probably skied a couple of my better races when I was mad, mm -hmm. when I was pissed off, when I was angry. And, you know, it's something that I've talked to a lot of coaches about, and my wife, who coaches at Dartmouth, and, you know, she she sort of comes with the opinion, well, that that's that can be very good fuel in the short term. But it's not sustainable, and I don't think it's a healthy way 
to be sustainable. But um, it, it's interesting. I mean, so I, I had those feelings of it was almost like I was punishing myself or the person who made me mad in cross country, you know? No, and I, I'll agree with that. Um, especially, you know, Nordic combined is interesting because if you don't jump well, you got to ski fast. Um, if you jump well, you still have to ski fast. But when you don't have your best jump, you need to have a good race and uh, you need to find that energy within to be able to, you know, challenge yourself to make up that time to, you know, get into points, get into the top 20, into the money, um, whatever it may be. And, you know, I've found a nice little way for me to do that and to harness that power of that frustration from the jumping. You know, if I need to kind of let it out for a minute or two, I'll go and, and I'll do that. But uh, then I drop it. I let it go and I take it with me to the cross country. And mm-hmm. I know how my body reacts to racing. And I know if I'm going too hard or uh, not hard enough pretty much right away. And so then I can settle in and, and have a, a quality race and at least come away feeling you know a little bit more rewarding knowing that you had a good race after a challenging jump. I never really thought about this, but then I had one of the German athletes come up and said, Hey, you know, I admire you guys every single race because, you know, a lot of the top Europeans, if they don't have a good jump, they may not race. And we're out there every Mm -hmm. single race fighting, whether it's for 31st place or 30th place, you know, with the hopes of, Hey, you know, this is going to be a good training race going into next weekend's competitions. So let's, let's get it done. Tell me how you view the state of Nordic combined internationally. You know, the Germans have, have done very well. Of course, the Norwegians, it's not surprising they have done well. Um, Austria, too. Um, what, what, how do you view Nordic combined now? It's still very popular in Europe, right? Yeah, I, I would say it's honestly growing around the world. I mean, you're, you're seeing more nations coming into the sport, but also, you know, you're seeing these, these athletes, uh, they're starting to make a little bit of a living off of, of Nordic combined, which is cool. But the logic behind Nordic combined for a long time was you have to balance out your training. So the more you focus on jumping, the more that you're maybe taking away from cross country and vice versa. I would say the Germans kind of debunked that theory in 2017 when they were sweeping the podium, um, weekend after weekend jumping to the top and skiing the fastest and it changed the sport for the good. Now you're seeing these athletes like Jarl Magnus Reber that are going out there that are winning the jumping by so much and still skiing extremely fast. Um, for a long time, I mean, back into the, the nineties, the two thousands, there were good jumpers, there were good skiers, but the ones that usually won the overall were the ones that were somewhat decent at both. And uh, nowadays you have to be in the top 10 of the jumping and you have to be in the top 10 of the cross country in order to have a a chance at the the victory. Isn't the jumping weighted a little more now than the cross country? I'm not sure I understand that, but is that correct? I can't remember what year they changed it, but they increased the points per meter on large hills Mm -hmm. to 1.8 from 1.5. So now you're getting a little bit more points. Um, 
it doesn't really affect the front end of the competition. The best jumpers are still going to be the best jumpers, but uh, it, it's spread out the field quite a bit. And so okay. it's now more or less um, incredibly import, important to go out there and um, strive for every meter possible um, so that you're not as far back. What that has kind of done, and uh, you know, Dave Jarrett was kind of an advocate for this, is it's only going to make people faster on the cross country because now you're going to have more people having to learn how to ski on their own um, versus skiing in a pack. Um, but that that middle section of the the field is still tightly grouped, and so now you're seeing you know those places from ten to thirty all are pretty fast. Um, and, and are really challenging each other. So in reality, the whole aspect of Nordic combined has taken a pretty large step up, um, in competition where, you know, it's, it's more competitive and, and, uh, you're seeing, you know, these top athletes, uh, you know, skiing better than they ever have before, um, every weekend. And there's a, certainly been a push for a number of years now to get women into Nordic Combined. Uh, there uh, has been a Nordic Combined World Cup uh, started. Tara uh, took uh, that crown mm-hmm. on the basis of Ramsau. Are you uh, are you confident, Taylor, that down the road or at some point we will see women in the Olympic Games for Combined? I am absolutely confident. Women's Nordic Combined is on the fast track. It's not entirely the same as women's ski jumping. We're we're doing everything we can. I mean, I know USA Nordic has put a lot of resources into developing Women's Nordic Combined here in the U.S. And uh, I'm excited to see it. You know, Tara was instrumental in her success, and and uh, you know we hate to see her leave, but in reality, you know we have Annika Malasinski. The progress that she's made the last uh, two years in in Nordic Combine is uh, incredible. But then you're looking at all the other athletes, the the Norwegians, the Austrians. These are girls that essentially never really thought Nordic Combine was a possibility and then decided, hey, I'm going to give this a shot. But now they're starting to actually, you know, become very quality skiers, which is, uh, you know, amazing to see and promising. Um, there's still a lot of work to do. You know, we, there's only 30, 30 athletes, 25, 30 athletes. And so I know fist would want them to have upwards of 60, but, uh, I do believe they're going to get in the Olympics and I do believe it's going to be a very competitive, uh, level in the next five years. I'm, I'm really interested to see the progression that every athlete makes these next couple of years, because they know that there's a lot on stake. And, uh, and that's the cool thing is they're going to be pushing as hard as they possibly can. So that when they become an Olympic sport, um, they're going to be fighting for those first ever Olympic medals. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So four Olympics, can you put that into words, what it means? It's a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's a, a dream come true. I love this sport. I've given my, my life to it. Uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of sacrifices, um, you know, friends, uh, nights out, uh, job education. It's, uh, it's something that I won't ever take for granted. I mean, what I've, I've learned and experienced over my career is the most valuable thing I could ever, uh, gather. 
And yeah. the the people that I've met, um, both athletes, but sponsors and, and uh, partners and is helped me become the person I am today. And so the career in itself is, is great going to one Olympics, but being able to go um, every time that there's been Olympics in my career is, is uh, awesome. We started in Vancouver in 2010 and our team had incredible success. Um, and then unfortunately, 2014 was kind of a, a rough year for us. And we lost mm-hmm. all of our funding right after that Olympics. But right. then the team battled extremely hard. And, you know, I can't thank everyone that's been involved um, enough because they've gotten our team to be, you know, back to where it used to be. And now we have this young group of athletes coming up. We were able to qualify five athletes in uh, Pyeongchang, and we're on track to do that again come 2022 Olympics. And it gives me the confidence for the future generation of Nordic Combined. But for me, I'm really in there to go out there and, and, you know, take this Olympics in. You know, it's probably my last Olympics. Be able to enjoy it, but then also execute. It's a, a challenge that I'm, I'm ready for, and, and I know the rest of my team is. Um, so it should be a good time. I must say, it's just delightful to talk to you, and I really appreciate it. You're, you're, you're a really remarkable young man on many levels, and you've, you've been fortunate also to, to have a, a family that understands and supports you. Um, uh, I know that for sure, and um, that's a lovely place to be in. So um, thank you. You're so welcome. I, I, I thank you for joining us and um, this, you know, congratulations on your skiing in Lake Placid and I'll be watching along with the rest of us, uh, you uh, at Beijing and just wishing you all the best Taylor. So thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, Peter. It's been lovely. All right. Well, that's Taylor Fletcher. This is another edition of Ticket to Fly, and we'll talk again soon.